Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it has been uh, at least almost close to six days since I was on the air with you all last, and I'm sure a good number of you were wondering when I would even come back on the air again next. Well, as I've said many of times before, and I would say it again, uh, life doesn't always revolve around one interest or let alone uh, one thing in my case being podcasting. As much as I enjoy podcasting and sharing with all of you, my fellow 101 listeners, um, relevant historical information, as much as I enjoy doing that, I also realize that there are um, other aspects of life that um, that can't be ignored and that um, should be pursued and in some instances take precedent over uh, podcasting. So, um I'm sure some of you are wondering, uh, did I do anything exciting from the last time I was on the air with you all up until now? Well, I can say that I did uh, get to do something exciting. Uh, my wife and I, um, this past Saturday, went up to um, the Shenandoah Valley, uh, Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, which is about um, oh, about two hours uh, west of where I live. Of course, it depends on where you're going in the Shenandoah Valley because you can go as far north as uh, Winchester which is right um, smack dab between the Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland line, or you can go as far south as uh, Roanoke, which is um, about uh, 40 miles uh, east of uh, Blacksburg and uh, not too far from uh, Radford. Uh, Roanoke is probably about the uh, southernmost part of the uh, Shenandoah Valley. But my alma mater where I went to college is in uh, Bridgewater, which is just on the outskirts of uh, Harrisonburg up uh, 81 north uh, off of exit 240. I hadn't been back in uh, two years, but it was uh, very well worth uh, going back. Uh, who would have thought uh, two years ago, any of us, who would, have, who, who would have ever thought in our wildest imaginations that uh, a pandemic would, um, a global pandemic that is, would um, impact life to where homecomings were disrupted uh, at colleges last year. And I'm just very thankful that uh, that my alma mater is doing very well, uh, that enrollment is up. Um, there was a great turnout Saturday. I'm very thankful that, that uh, there was a football season to be held. Um, it was great seeing people that I hadn't seen in quite some time and um, was able to make some new memories as well, too. So um, that was my big highlight uh, from the last time I was on the air uh, with you all. But here we are again discussing um, Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, A True Story of Loss, Survival, and Rescue at Sea. If I recall the last time when I was on the air with all of you, my fellow listeners, we learned about um, how uh, the people of uh, Rogers City were in great shock, especially considering that you know, the Bradley Transportation Company had never experienced anything um, so unexpected that it would have um, prompted a national emergency. And not just a national emergency, but an emergency of um, epic proportions. And what was the emergency? Well, really, I should say the travesty at hand is that the Carl D. Bradley herself has sunk. And the bigger question is, how many survivors can be pulled from the uh, waters? After all, if I'm not mistaken, weren't there um, four um, men who made it to a raft? Yes. As of right now, are those four men still alive? Yes. But is it fair to say, too, that uh, from the last time we were on the air, we learned about um, a couple who ran a... Um, a uh, Radio um, station being the Klons, Harvey and Janice Klon. And if I recall, didn't uh, outsiders want to obtain information that the Klons might have had? Sure. But the Klons held their ground. They held their ground because they didn't want to um, run the risk of ruining friendships because it just so happens that they themselves were friends with a handful of family members or various family members with uh, crewmen aboard the Carl D. Bradley. 
So the Klons were smart in realizing that, hey, if they uh, broke sacred trust with these uh, families, then there would be no friendship at all, or friendships for that matter to have had. So uh, that's some of the, um, what do you call it, uh, recap from where we were um, from the previous uh, episode. But in this episode, we're going to um, learn about um, hypothermia. We're going to also learn about um, some triumph. But I should just tell you all right now that the triumph will learn. While, yes, triumph can be a good thing, you know, and on another hand, depending on the circumstances, it could be a bad thing, depending on what the matter itself is all about. But I can't admit that the triumph we will learn in this episode, it's a, it's a great uh, news of triumph, but it's the but it's a triumph that will not um, be what uh, everyone is wanting. And if I perhaps tell any more, then there may not even be a need to have a, a a full podcast on this. So our first question for this episode or of uh, tonight's segment to the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley is the following. Which of the four Bradley crewmen who made it aboard onto the life raft is now beginning to show signs of hypothermia? Well, here are the choices. Was it uh, choice A, Dennis Meredith? Choice B, Frank Mays? Choice C, Gary Strezelecki, or Choice D, Elmer Fleming? Uh, the answer is Choice A, um, being Dennis Meredith. Well, Dennis Meredith, one of the signs that um, can be attributed to Dennis Meredith's having signs of hypothermia is that his muscles are cramping due to constant shivering, along with lacking endurance to make it back on his own into the raft. He is basically hanging on to the raft by its side, with the lower part of his body still in the water. So in other words, he's lacking stamina. His body has pretty much been shut down in the cold water um, to where he he sadly pretty much loses his ability to reason, to think properly, and just be his ability to do the most simplest of things is now completely shut. You know, that's something that if we're not all careful, we can take for granted. You know, it's one thing to get tired. It's another thing to maybe not have enough endurance at a particular moment, but when you are dealing with the forces of Mother Nature especially in November, not just so much when the skies of November turn gloomy, November being the most uh, dangerous time of, um, the most dangerous month on the Great Lakes waters, but it's all of the effects brought on by Mother Nature, you know, being thrown overboard, uh, waves pounding at you, um, elements that you have no control over to get to this point. So it is fair to say that uh, Dennis Meredith is, in fact, uh, hanging by a uh, thread. It, let me ask you this. Um, are there um, various levels of hypothermia? Yes. For one, uh, you can have the mildest level of hypothermia. You could have medium range, and you could have the most, what's called severe. Dennis Meredith's con condition lies between medium and severe. His body temperature um, is extremely low. He, he is exhausted and barely conscious. So as I said earlier, he's sadly hanging by a thread. So if somebody wanted to know what exactly is a good way of describing what hypothermia is and what are the factors behind hypothermia, we should find that out. Well, let me ask you this. What is a, a, a person's normal body temperature? What, what should it be? Should it be at 96.1, 97.5, or 98.6? The answer is choice C. It should be at 98.6 degrees. But hypothermia kicks in when a, when a person or rather an individual's body temperature falls below 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Besides the air and water temperatures outside, 
a person's size in terms of how much they weigh to their age and physical condition can serve as key factors and whether or not the individual or a group of individuals can survive in frigid uh, waters and at the same time experiencing um, signs of hypothermia regardless of whether it being mild, medium to severe. One disadvantage sadly that Dennis Meredith did not have and this was something he didn't have control over but then again I believe it's fair to say that a good handful of the uh, 35-man crew aboard the Bradley, many of them were um, asleep in their cabins when the uh, alarm, um, when the evacuation alarm bell was rung to where everybody needed to get up to the um, main deck um, as quickly as possible. For a good number of the men, they were um, they were not uh, fully dressed. In other words. That, you know, they would have had a pajama shirt on, but they would not have been warmly dressed to where by the time they got up to the decks, if they were to uh, be thrown overboard into the water, their chances of survival might have been a little bit better because with extra clothing, um, in terms of dealing with frigid waters, the more clothing you'd have on, perhaps the better your chances would be of, um, of surviving. Of course, that's not to say that, yes, you could still have all the clothing to keep you warm, but it do, but even that alone might not automatically guarantee your chances of survival 100%. However, the more clothing you did have on did increase your chances of survival, considering just um, how dire the uh, weather conditions had gotten on the evening of November 18, 1958. So, yes, uh, sadly for Dennis Meredith, he was not fully dressed before and after the Bradley sank. And his being thin didn't help. Well, I always would have thought that if you were thin and in good, sh and in good health, that you might have had a good chance of survival. Well, you know, yes, it's one thing to be thin and fit, but that doesn't automatically guarantee that you are agile and mobile in being able to navigate yourself along the uh, waters, most notably of the, uh, not just so much the Great Lakes, but in this case with uh, Lake Michigan. So every time the raft has flipped, and, and we must keep in mind, folks, that the raft has flipped because of the waves. And we're not just talking dinky-sized wave, wave, waves, folks. I mean, we are talking waves that or maybe between 5 and 10 feet at best. Who knows, maybe even 15-foot waves. I mean, we're still dealing with a storm out on uh, Lake Michigan's water. So these, you know, rogue waves or waves that are just coming out of nowhere are throwing the men off the raft. And, the re and every time the men um, fall off the raft as a result of the uh, raft flipping as a result of the uh, waves, each man is using up more energy when fighting the waves. So we have to remember, folks, that, you know, this isn't like going to the beach. It's summertime, you know, when a wave, you know, pushes us um, either under for a few minutes or it uh, pushes us into the, um, what do you call it, into um, where the sand is when we're like riding the waves on a boogie board. Uh, this is the complete opposite. These men whom are on the waters in Lake Michigan right now, Elmer Fleming, Gary Strezelecki, uh, Frank Mays, and Dennis Meredith, they're in uh, for the fight for their lives. Well, let me, all, let me ask you all this about Dennis Meredith. Did he um, make it past November 18th, uh, 1958? Did he basically live to see the next day, uh, the 19th? No, uh, sadly, um, he he died uh, well before midnight on the uh, on the 18th. Frank Mays uh, saw firsthand after having pulled Meredith's face out of the water, where sadly Dennis Meredith's eyes were um, rolled, pointing backward to his head. In other words, they weren't um, looking straight in the center; they were. Um, pointing um, upward as high as you could go, but back towards his head, which uh, sadly um, meant that um, he, his, um, 
that he had lost his life. I can't imagine being uh, Frank Mays and um, having pulled Dennis Meredith out of the water and this time knowing that Dennis was sadly gone. Not just not just uh, one of your fellow crewmen, but perhaps someone you had known for a very long time. We have to remember, folks, that 26 of the 35 um, Bradley crew people were from Rogers City. Um, and we have to remember, too, that so many people in Rogers City work for the Bradley Transportation Company, company as well as for Michigan uh, Limestone and Chemical Company. Everybody knows each other in some form or another, regardless of whether you're a relative or acquaintance. And it's fair to say that um, eventually over time, in a short amount of time, that is, that the, that the loss, that the sense of loss, not just of a ship, but of uh, crew people who did not make it back home are going to, um, it's going to really rock the uh, community. But I could say with, uh, with full-scale uh, honesty here that uh, for Frank Mays, this, this is a very, very tragic moment. It's bad enough that the Bradley's gone forever, but now he's seeing firsthand one of his own fellow crewmen who made it aboard the raft now lose his life um, because of the elements of Mother Nature. So without any disturbances, or rather I should say noises, Frank Mays knows that he has to keep his composure. I don't know how he did it, but he did. Frank Mays and Gary Strezelecki each go about releasing Dennis Meredith's arms to where they let him drift away. Sadly, uh, Dennis Meredith's, Meredith's body will never get recovered. We have to keep in mind, folks, too, that there's no such thing as cell phones back then. Um, so we have... You know, there's really no way to report right away that, hey, we're missing, and only to say, hey, by the way, we just lost one of our crewmen on the raft. At what time did uh, Captain Harold Muth and his crew aboard the U.S. Coast, Gutter, Coast Guard Cutter, pardon me, the Sundew, arrive to the Bradley um, wreckage site, or, or the site, rather, I should say, where the Bradley went down? What time uh, do you all think they uh, got there? Um, now, we should keep in mind that the Bradley sank around 5.30 on the evening of the 18th. The Sundew left Charlevoix about 50 minutes after the Bradley reportedly went missing, or rather I should say went down. So that means that the um, Sundew did not leave out of Charlevoix at best until 6.20. Well, the Brad, uh, the the Sundew um, arrived at the site just around uh, 10.40 p.m. Folks, that's four hours and 20 minutes after departing from Charlevoix and more than five hours after the Bradley sank. And isn't it fair to say that even the Charlevoix, not the Charlevoix, but the uh, Sundew herself wasn't immune from the storm? That's correct. I know that Captain Harold Muth would have liked to have gotten there sooner, but he's also got to um, take into consideration the safety of his crew, and he's also got to battle the element. He had to battle the elements of Mother Nature, but yet he still made it there. And I'm sure he's probably thinking to himself, "What if we had not had the storm? What if the storm wasn't as severe as it was? Could we have gotten there an hour or two earlier?" And perhaps, um, and perhaps um, gotten there in enough time to where maybe we could have um, spotted some survivors sooner. These are questions that we have to uh, ponder with, folks. We have to put ourselves in these people's shoes. We have to think to ourselves: What if we were? Uh, what if I was Captain Harold Muth, uh, the commander of the Sundew, navigating the ship in these torrential conditions? knowing that it's going to take longer to get there, but yet I still need to make the sacrifice to ensure that I made a good faith effort as captain of this boat to ensure that we made every effort to locate those whom were missing aboard the Carl D. Bradley. The search area is roughly about 10 miles south, or rather I should say southwest of Goal Island, where the Bradley ship sank nearby. 
Now, given that the wind is still blowing at 60 miles an hour from the southwest, Captain Muth firmly believes that any or all items belonging to the Bradley ship, and what items are we talking about here, folks? How about life jackets, lifeboat? Remember, there were a couple of lifeboats aboard the Bradley. He believes that these items would have by now moved towards a chain of islands going northeast. Okay, what islands might there be uh, northeast of uh, Goal Island? I looked at the map, and there is a map at the very beginning of this book, and I bookmarked it because I wanted to remind myself exactly where the Bradley had officially sunk, but where the Bradley was in relation to other uh, various islands, and, and, and we must keep in mind that there are a fair number of these islands around Lake Michigan that are not inhabited by people. So the islands to the northeast um, were um, Squaw Island, Garden Island, Beaver Island, Hog Island, Whiskey Island, and Trout Island, uh, just, um, just right after Gull Island as well as High Island. Yeah, that's a few number of islands I just mentioned there, to say the least, but we should be reminded of what um, of why these um, decisions were made. And Captain Muth is probably very right in that the um, items, if there were any items still floating on the water surface, they would have been moving uh, in a northeast northeasterly direction in large part because of the winds. You know, winds can take objects, folks, and take them in all kinds of directions. Another powerful uh, factor with Mother Nature in this uh, situation. Now, uh, Captain Muth's crew makes a valiant search in the night, but comes away with nothing, with nothing found. Visibility is not very strong, and with the air being very thick, and that could be due to fog. Okay, if visibility isn't good and the air is very thick, what um, what do you think they would have to do? They'd have to wait till morning. Who's to say that morning might be better in terms of visibility, but it's probably going to be better than at nighttime. Even the uh, lookout uh, crew people aboard the Sundew they couldn't determine if what was hitting them was either rain, snow, or sea spray. That's how bad it was, folks. They knew they were being hit with something. They just couldn't make out with it because of, um, of just how thick the air was with the fog and just how bad visibility was. Let's uh, think about this question right here. What kind of, um, what kind of first is the Bradley Transportation Company now being faced with? I... I'll admit that I probably did say this earlier, but I'm going to just say it again because now we have to put ourselves as if we were working with the Bradley Transportation Company. They are having to come, uh, that is not just uh, corporate officials, but even um, employees of the company are all having to come to a realization that they have lost one of their own ship. It's not just a ship, but they lost the flagship boat of their entire fleet. The flagship being the signature ship. Yes, the um, the Harold uh, G. Munson had uh, obviously replaced the Bradley six years earlier as being the largest uh, ship in the fleet at 666 uh, feet long. But it's fair to say that people still want to associate the Bradley as the flagship, considering that she held so many records. For carrying uh, cargo, uh, for carrying overall ton high tonnage levels of cargo in her early days, to just being that uh, signature ship that, for the longest time, just couldn't do anything wrong. And just eight months earlier, in March of 1958, the Bradley Transportation Company had thrown a party for going a thousand days without reporting an injury. That was a record right there, but sadly. That record isn't going to mean anything now. You know, yes, it's nice to celebrate milestones, but even some, but even when a bad um, incident happens, and sadly it only takes one incident to change everything that you've worked so hard for to now become something of a distant past. Bradley transportation um, officials know what to expect reaction-wise from the families 
whose loved ones were aboard the ship. What kind of reactions do you think that um, transportation officials could encounter? Resentment, anger, shock to sadness. If somebody were, let's just say I was alive, of course this would be easier said than done, but let's just say I was living in Rogers City in 1958, and let's say I worked for the Bradley Transportation Company, but I was not a sailor out on the waters, but let's just say I worked for them. What would be my first initial reaction upon hearing about the loss of the Bradley? It would be both shock and sadness. However, I must also realize, too, that if I had a, a relative on the Bradley, I would have to be pondering with all thoughts left and right, wondering, is, the, is this relative of mine coming home? What if this relative of mine didn't make it? So, yes, I could see where perhaps resentment and, and anger could set in. It doesn't make it right that this incident sadly happened. It's a travesty. It's a travesty for, a, uh, for the shipping community. It's a travesty for a town, considering 26 of the 35 uh, crewmen aboard the Bradley are from Rogers City. So there's all kinds of, um, of, of emotional uncertainty now um, impacting everybody, not just with the uh, corporate officials, but with the greater community. Most crewmen's um, immediate families are already aware of the news via radio and through acquaintances. However, they have not been made aware of the official news from company officials. You don't think company officials would want to be hiding anything from the families. I don't believe so. What the company officials want to make sure they get straight are their facts. In other words, do you think it would be right if John Smith, we're going to use a fictitious name here. Do you think it'd be right for John Smith, if he was a corporate official with the Bradley Transportation Company, to come up to uh, to uh, Dennis Meredith's family and say out of nowhere, "Oh, Mr. and Mrs. Meredith, uh, we believe that your um, that uh, Dennis did not, um, or rather, to his greater family, oh, um, we believe that uh, Dennis was among one of the uh, many victims that uh, did not." Um, survive the ordeal and let's just say for some reason unbeknownst that john smith got his facts wrong and somehow dennis did survive it's one thing to say something to a family that's in grieving but what if it was the wrong information you've just made that family all the more uncomfortable all the more un emotionally unstable to the point where they might decide to take John Smith to court and sue him for um, for uh, sue him for um, not just so much getting his not getting his facts straight, but sue him for providing um, false information that um, led the Meredith family to um, endure further grievances beyond their control. So the bottom line is this: if you're a company official right now, you want to make sure you get all your facts straight before you have to make those painful phone calls to family members or stop by their house to deliver them the most un unbearable of news that there is to uh, provide. I mean, yes, we all want news, but we're not always going to be... There's never a guarantee that the news you get is what you want. Are personal calls from Bradley Company officials to crewmen's immediate families required? Yes. Considering this would fall under standard uh, company protocol procedures. However, uh, the Bradley Company officials will go about visiting to contacting uh, the primary person of each family whom is listed as an emergency source for each missing crewman, with the hope that the individual, and in this case, a.k.a. the wife's parents, a.k.a. the wife or the parents, will help spread the word out. We should keep in mind, too, that there are at least two or three um, members of the 35-man uh, crew whom were only uh, 18 years of age. And, more, and yes, at age 18 you are an adult, but that's not to say that those two or three 18-year-olds were probably still living at home, so... 
if they had listed their parents as primary emergency contacts, then yes, their parents would have had to have been notified. Now, um, we already have established that 26 of the 35 uh, Bradley crewmen were from Rogers City. Um, does anybody know where Metz Township is located? It's outside of Rogers City, but it turns out that's where Dennis Meredith's um, extended family resides. Were the Merediths aware of what had happened to the Carl D. Bradley? No, they weren't. So how did they get made aware of what happened to the Bradley? A personnel director from Michigan Limestone Company drove out to the Meredith home and advised them of the matter. I can only, be, I can only imagine what that must have been like for that uh, personnel director from Michigan Limestone Company to to drive all the way out there and have to uh, share that piece of uh, sad news. But I do feel good knowing that at least somebody was willing to, well, not just willing, but they knew that it was uh, required of them to do, to, to take the drive out there and at least inform the family. This way the family wasn't going to be left out in the dark. Who's Marlis Mays? Is she Frank Mays' wife? Yes. Marlis Mays, she collapsed when learning about the Bradley disappearing. She was that horrified, folks, by what was by what she had been told. But then again, um, the the majority of the crewmen aboard the Bradley were married, so I could see how um, for any of those wives, I can only imagine what the look on their face must have been like shock, disbelief to where, yes, any one of them could have collapsed on the floor. That's what happened with Marlis Mays. What was, uh, what was done to help Marlis Mays out? I mean, she's in a lot of disbelief. She's in shock. You know, it's one thing to be in shock. It's one thing to fear the worst. It's one thing to in some ways, just lose it all. But you've got to be able to find a way to keep your composure. And I know that's easier said than done. But a doctor had come by and helped administer a sedative to Mrs. Mays. Does anybody know what a sedative is? I'm sure many of you all do know what sedatives are. Sedatives are... Um, a sedative, rather, I should say, is a drug that is used to help calm someone in times in times of distress. Well, if it hadn't been for that sedative, I'm not sure how well um, Mrs. Mays would have been able to have kept her um, sanity together. I mean, yes, yeah, she's got every right to be worried. She has every right to be grieving at the moment because she doesn't know if her husband has survived. But she's also got children to think about as well. And she's got to be able to find a way to keep her composure strong for her children. You know, at the same time, you know, she's got to think to herself, you know, what do I want my children to be exposed to at this moment? They don't, you know, because of how um, dire this situation is, given that Rogers City has never seen anything like this before, the situation at stake Rogers City officials go about having a police department squad car available to chauffeur the doctor from home to home. That's, this is something that's sorely needed in this, um, in this um, harrowing moment of time. So this doctor is going to be able to go around and administer sedatives to other wives of missing um, crewmen. You know, as for Mary Fleming, who is um, the wife of Elmer Fleming, she knows that if anyone can survive being out on Lake Michigan's waters, it would be her husband. For one, he's had a long service, just shy of 25 years. He's about he's in his 23rd year with um, with the Bradley Transportation Company, being out on the waters. But it's also his expertise in challenging circumstances. Remember, he was the first mate. That is, he was next in line to um, Captain Roland Bryan. You know, if anything had happened to the captain, he was too ill to perform his duties. 
Elmer Fleming would have taken over. But isn't it fair to say that even with um, Elmer Fleming being one of the survivors now on the raft, is it fair to say that he is using some of his, um, not just some of his, but a lot of his expertise as a first mate on the water, on a raft? Yes. On the other hand, though, um, Mary is also realistic. In other words, she has to embrace herself for the unexpected. She, had, she went as far as telling her 15-year-old son the following. And this was in quotes, folks, but this is what she said. Your father may not be coming back to us. Now, I can't imagine uh, being um, Elmer and Mary Fleming's uh, 15-year-old son only to have my mother come up to me and say, your father might your father may not be coming back to us now i can't imagine how what the look on his face must have been like knowing how do i go to school the next day how can i uh still function well in school and get good grades and do my uh homework assignments knowing that not knowing when i'll even know if in fact my father survived you know, we have to remember, folks, we don't have breaking news alert stations or notices like we do today. But the news of this ship's disappearance, it is breaking news. I mean, it is, it's something that has just never happened to a community like Roger City. Did the death, or, or um, should I say, did the death or uh, passing of Dennis Meredith impact Gary Strezelecki's overall morale? I think it would have impacted anybody's um, morale who is left aboard the uh, raft. But as for Gary uh, Strezelecki, yes. In large part, considering that the Christian Sartori, whom um, was out there earlier looking for the uh, Bradley, and they were only 100 yards away from the uh, raft, but yet, pardon me, the uh, Sartori could not spot them on the raft. And to make matters worse, with the raft being um, hit by the waves and the men falling out of the raft, that was attributed, folks, to the uh, sea anchor being um, now being lost because of the, um, because of the uh, waves, the effect of the waves that came crashing into the raft. They were so strong that it basically, um, it was like unlatching something that had been securely tied. So that's sadly what happened to the sea anchor, basically, was that it lost its uh, durability to uh, keep the raft intact. So for each time the uh, raft has flipped, obviously the men are losing energy, as mentioned earlier. But the journey becomes even more difficult in large part because you're battling time. You know, this is a struggle not just against nature, but it's a it's a battle against the elements of time and wondering, okay, how many more times are we going to fall out of the raft because of the of the waves? Not and knowing that we don't have a sea anchor that can support us, but for each time we get knocked down, can we get back up and do something that is by staying alive? And if so, how much more time do we have before we succumb? to the forces of Mother Nature. So, you know, we think we have all this time to survive, but we really don't. And that's what these three men are now being confronted with. The elements from exhaustion to in-between falling asleep and losing consciousness will become more pre prevalent if help doesn't arrive soon enough in time. So it's just not so much battling the waves, folks, but how about losing consciousness? of knowing where you are and what's around you. It's scary. Did Gary Strezelecki survive his ordeal? No, he didn't. He took matters into his own hands by going off the raft. Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays pleaded with him, but despite their best efforts in holding him back, the waves swept him away for good. There's only two, it looks like, folks, now we're only dealing with two men left. Now we have to wonder, is anybody going to survive? Will, will, there be peop, will there be any survivors left on this raft that will be alive to tell the story of what happened on that fateful night of November 18th, 1958? 
What did uh, Richard Sellison of the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Sundew spot with his binoculars come early morning sunrise, November 19th? Richard Sellison, along with Captain Harold Muth, spotted two men wearing life jackets on a raft. And who do you think those two men were, folks? They were none other than Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming, two of the Carl D. Bradley Two out of 35 uh, crewmen of the Carl D. Bradley. Two. Don't we wish there could have been more? Is there still a possibility that maybe there could be survivors out there, folks? Yes, that's what I want to believe. But just the fact knowing that they have found two survivors is better than none. But the bigger question is, is okay, there are two men wearing life jackets on a raft, being, Carl, being that they are survivors of the Carl D. Bradley, it's real, the bigger question is, is how soon can we get these men off the raft? And once we get them off the raft, what are their chances of survival long term? Let's find out. Considering how weak uh, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming are, the Sundew crewmen go about Listen to this, folks, and we have to keep in mind, we have to remember that they just, people just didn't, of the uh, Sundew just didn't extend their hands out and say, hey, let us pull you off the boat onto, um, onto our ship. That's not how it uh, played out, folks. The Sundew crewmen go about getting dropped to the Bradley raft. They get, we have to remember, folks, we're still battling a storm early morning. The elements of this storm have really not gone away 100%, but the only way that the, uh, the crew aboard the Sundew are going to um, be able to have better chances of survival and rescuing um, Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays is that they are going to have to get dropped down to the Bradley raft. And we're not just, you know, by dropping them, we know we're not just throwing them overboard, folks. No, they are getting dropped securely to where... They will be able to um, be able to position themselves to where they can get both of the uh, survivors, both of the Bradley survivors, off the raft in a uh, safe, efficient manner. The survivors, listen to this, folks. They will be hoisted, or rather, I should say, raised above to ensure their safety and the Sundew crewmen's safety in preventing anyone from going overboard. So usually when I, you know, when I think of something being hoisted, I think of a crane. But in this case, folks, even in 1958, what's amazing is that there was technology then to be able to go about ensuring that the crew aboard one ship would be safe in not only performing their duties and rescuing um, survivors of another ship from a raft, but... It, it's something that, there again, we can't take for granted. I mean, yes, technology's come a long way in the last 60 years, but but there were things that worked 60 years ago that were just as remarkable then, like the technology that might be in existence today. Um, I mean, that's a whole other subject, but it's just something that we should be reminded of. All the Sundew crewmen have rope tied around their waists. Okay. So that's, that's going to help ensure their safety and not going overboard. And, that's, and, and both Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays were um, transferred um, without any physical harm onto the Sundew. And the weather on Lake Michigan is still bad, is still bad at the time that the rescue of these two survivors it's fair to say that the Sundew was at the right place at the right time. The Sundew did not give up. You know, Frank Mays, Elmer Fleming, and Gary Strezelecki and Dennis Meredith, they all were clinging on to hope. And that's what you have to cling on to in times of despair, times of uncertainty. Even the Sundew, Captain Harold Muth and, the, and his entire crew had to cling on to faith and hope as they were going through that storm. It's probably fair to say that maybe the Christian Sartori did too. I mean, nobody left anything on the table to chance here, folks.
a makeshift um okay let me ask you all this um do you think that there was anybody um aboard the sundew who um who had um hospital um expertise yes there was um and uh, and because there was someone who had hospital expertise and being a doctor he went about uh, coordinating a makeshift hospital. But the best thing here, folks, was that a makeshift hospital was already put into play prior to having found El Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays. How long do you think it took to rescue um, the survivors that were on the raft? Do you think it took um, more than 12 hours? Or do you think it took between 15 and 16 hours? Well, let me let me re, let me revise choice A. Was it uh, between 10 and 12 hours, and then choice B between uh, 15 and 16 hours? The answer is choice B. Uh, between 15 and 16, really, um, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming were rescued 16 hours after the Bradley had sunk at 5:30 p.m. the day before. 16 hours, folks, that these men were out on the water. I don't know how anybody could have survived 16 hours. But there again, they clung to hope. But that's not to say that any of the other men out on those waters, they would have clung to hope and faith as well. So now we, we have to ask ourselves this question, and I probably will mention it again in another podcast. Why is it that some men survived and so many others didn't. That's a question that uh, will have to linger with us for a long time. But I can say this much now, is that God was looking after all of those men. God didn't want any of those men to have died. But is it fair to say that when someone passes away after having suffered for so long in terms of a a medical illness or a a condition that they had been fighting left and right to beat but yet lost that lost the ability to fight any further one could say that maybe god is looking after them in the sense that he is making sure that that person no longer has to suffer physically or emotionally i'm not a theologian folks i'm not trying to get off track here but these are um questions and scenarios that we have to think about. We have to think to ourselves, how was it that some people survived? And how, and why is it sadly that others didn't? Let's just keep that in our minds. Were Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays in better shape than others had originally expected? Yes. Neither man showed any signs of frostbite to having body temperatures just above 98.6 degrees. As a matter of fact, both men, when they had their uh, body temperatures taken, their uh, temperatures registered just above 99, around 99.3, 99.5. However, maybe it's fair to say they weren't out of the woods completely. Each man had, sw had a swollen face, as to, as to be expected, blue lips, to having multiple bruises and scrapes from being battered upon the raft's water, wave beatings. We have to remember these aren't. In, this is not an inflatable raft, folks. You know, we, when we think of inflatable rafts, we think of you know taking those rafts to the beach or the swimming pool for fun. No, th this is not an inflatable raft. This is a. Um, you could say it's like a wooden raft, basically. So I could see how it would be been very easy to have taken uh, multiple wave beatings as a result of the raft um, either flipping over or the raft um, losing its um, stability in terms of um, of not uh, being able to um, safely avoid a, a rogue wave coming in. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there was gonna we were gonna mention about a joyous moment. Well, is it fair to say that we've already uncovered the joyous moment and that two Bradley crewmen survivors have been found? Yes, 
there's reason to celebrate. There, there's reason for for what we want to be a long-term hope and with the desire that perhaps um, the Sundew, led by Captain Harold Muth, will be able to perhaps find a few more survivors. However, I will have to um, report here that um, that the joyous celebration is going to be short-lived because there is a helicopter that is part of the greater uh, search and rescue mission effort that um, advises Captain Harold Muth of bad news. What do you think that bad news is, folks? Well, the, um, the helicopter man um, discovered a body that had been spotted just northeast of Goal Island. So that leads me to believe right there, folks, that if a body has been spotted just northeast of Goal Island, that there is the likelihood that, that other bodies will be spotted. After all, Captain Harold Muth did believe that any objects that they would have uh, spotted on the surface of the waters, being a rain jacket or a lifeboat, would have been going in a northeasterly direction. You know, it's one thing to get one piece of bad news. You just hope that you don't get any more bad news, but even that is something, folks, that we don't have control over, especially in this situation. We can be thankful that two men have survived. We just have to keep our fingers crossed that um, that that their that their chances of survival will continue to go up, knowing that they have knowing the ordeal they've been through, given that they have been out on the water for 16 hours after the Bradley had had sunk at 5:30 p.m. the day before on the 18th. There still is a lot of um, unknown questions and answers. And what I mean by answers is um, what uh, what kind of news will the will um, will Bradley Transportation Company officials go about delivering to uh, families? Will uh, families um, arrive to uh, the decks of um, arrive to Charlevoix, or will they stay put in Rogers City? We, there are still a lot of unknown uh, questions, but when I'm on the air again next, we're going to uh, talk about the day more about the day after on the 19th, and how um, and how uh, many in Rogers City um, tried to go on with their lives as best as they could, but yet there was also just this feeling of great uncertainty, not knowing what this next day was going to bring in terms of whether or not. Uh, search and rescue crew efforts were going to bring better news, and the better news being that more survivors were found. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and thank you for uh, letting me be on the air with you all. As always, you guys are great listeners. I certainly did miss uh, being with you all on the air, but I'm but I was really really glad to be back on, and I'm hoping to get back on the air again here soon, sometime before Saturday, as we. Uh, continue learning about this uh, forgotten uh, tragedy um, along the Great Lakes from 63 years ago, the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. Thank you again, as always, for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you, my uh, faithful 101 podcast listeners. Take care for now and stay safe.